This video is part of an audiobook series featuring The Spirit of Leadership, Liberating the Leader in Each of Us by Harrison Owen in 1999. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or visit my website for downloads. Chapter 11, The Fifth Function of Leadership, Raising Spirit. Raising spirit is the final task of leadership. It is final in the sense that it is the last one on the list of leadership functions, and also because it represents the critical difference between continuation and ultimate demise. When an organization simultaneously reaches its fulfillment and its end, the old forms, structures, building, plants, and facilities may persist for a period, indeed even hundreds of years, but they are rather like the remains of former civilizations, empty shells in which life was lived. There may be a few caretakers, hangers-on, and remnants of former days, but the spirit of the place moves out pretty quickly. Separated from the ruins of ancient Greece or Egypt by several millennia, we may look at them with a certain equanimity, even nostalgic attachment. But when the ruins happen to be your organization or business, such dispassionate contemplation is not likely. Leaving aside all elemental questions about the necessity to earn a living, certain thoughts will inevitably appear about all that might have been done or that could still be done if the spirit were available. Question. How do you revive spirit, not in the same old form, but in new forms and new structures appropriate to the changing environment? The work of Ilya Prigogine, referred to in Chapter 2, offers some suggestions and even hope. As you will remember, Prigogine tells us that systems stressed by a changing environment will move further and further out of equilibrium, seeking to readjust their present form to the new circumstances. Their activity will appear chaotic and random, and as the stress levels increase, so will the crazy efforts at adjustment. Finally, when no further adjustment is possible, the system will either fly apart or literally pop into a radical, discontinuous jump to new and more appropriate ways of being in that environment. If the first part of Prigogine's description sounds rather like a human system at the end of its rope, or more concretely, like your business when the competitors have just dropped a real bomb or the stock market has crashed, it may also be true that there is a pop in your future. And pop beats flop every time. But the question remains, how do you engineer such a thing? Were it necessary to create an effective approach de novo, I suspect that it might be a long time in coming. But the truth of the matter is that the mechanism already exists, and that we as a species have worked with and through it from our beginning. In contemporary literature, that mechanism is called grief work, but other ages and traditions would give it a different name. It is the period of mourning, the wake, the requiem, or sitting Shiva. Grief work is what we human beings do when confronted by death, our own, or the death of another. Virtually all modern research in this area has related to the individual response, but in my experience, precisely the same patterns take place when a whole organization is in jeopardy. What we know now of the process enables us not only to understand and predict with some accuracy the course of events under very trying and tumultuous circumstances, but also to identify and facilitate critical points along the way. Whatever else leadership may be about, it certainly finds its center of meaning when the chips are down quite literally, and it is time to raise spirit. But more, before moving on with the hows and whys, I must once again make it exquisitely clear that in using the title, le the word leadership, 
I do not refer to the leader, titular or otherwise, who in his or her own power is expected to pull off all of this. Altruistic and democratic principles aside, there is absolutely no possibility that any one person could accomplish what needs to get done. Recall two of the new rules of leadership introduced in chapter 3. First, the leader is whoever has the ball. And the corollary to that, ball hogs die. I believe that these rules always apply, but particularly in those moments when spirit is dragging and must be raised up. The complexity of events, coupled with the strain and stress of the situation, requires that each person be leader to the others. We all make it together, or nobody makes it at all. Grief at Work The experience of grief is known to us all in those moments when a loved one dies, a relationship ends, or a life work is over. That life work may be your individual life or a life defined in and through a particular organization, but the feeling of loss in the act of grieving will take place in any case. What most of us experience as an intense feeling is also a constructive process through which we honor the past, acknowledge the present, and set off for the future. It is our way of gathering our spirit and moving to a new form. The power of the process is such that in its midst it is difficult, perhaps impossible, to know anything other than that it began, it continues with pain, and eventually it ends. In fact, there are definite stages along the way, and although that knowledge may do little to ease the immediate pain, recognizing the stages as they pass can do much to orient you and help you to help others. Grief work begins with the moment of ending or its imminent approach. Its first manifestation is shock and anger. The response is purely physiological and nothing more than breathing in and breathing out slowly, as in, ooh, damn. The good news is that the patient is still breathing, and in moments of shock, the cessation of that life-giving function is a real possibility. But as a long-term strategy, it's as little more than keep life going and the spirit alive until something else can be done. First aid is administered by the next step, which I call denial and if-onlys. Denial is the pretense that nothing has happened, that life will surely go on as it always has. In an organizational setting, denial is expressed in words like, they can't close this plant down, how are those idiots on the other coast going to serve the whole region? When that kind of masking no longer works, the if-onlys start, as in, if only we had done something sooner, listen to that consultant or not listen to that consultant. The reality is, it is all over. But denial and if-onlys serve to push the pain off to a safe distance. In themselves, they do absolutely no good in terms of materially altering the situation. But what they do accomplish is critical. They provide distancing and surcease from the intense pain of ending, just what a bandage does for the healing of a wound. As the irreversible reality of the situation sinks in, although we are somewhat numbed by the anesthesia of denial, the healing process begins in earnest, but here, as in many points of life, it is necessary to go backward in order to make progress. The mechanism is memory. In the vacuum of ending, the memories flow through, with thoughts of all the things that were, and are no longer, that might have been, and that can never be. The sweet ones, the sad ones, the mad ones, the bad ones, all pass in review. For those watching this stage, it may well seem like a useless and interminable retreat to the past. Verbally, it will sound much the same as the previous stage of denial, but there is an important difference. Whereas denial was living in make-believe, the passage of memories is a serious acknowledgement of the past with the clear recognition that it is gone. 
Far from being useless, this acknowledgement is essential to honoring and releasing the past before the future ever becomes a possibility. The story, which bounds spirit, is being rewritten and prepared for a new tale that will be told. After a while, memories slow and eventually cease. There is nothing more to say. All the heroes have been identified in the major events reviewed. What remains is silence and pure open space. This open space is initially experienced as being profoundly down in the dumps, bereft of anything. Call it despair, for it is the empty agony of ending. There is nothing left, nothing to do, and no hope of bringing it all back again. Neither anger, denial, nor memory can restore what is no longer. It is over. If the pain is intense, there is also a sweetness in that pain, reminiscent of the first snow in early winter. The summer is past. The leaves lie dead on the ground. In the silence, the first flakes fall. There is profundity and awesomeness in that moment of silence, a holy moment, a moment filled with wholeness and completion. In the absence of all the things that should be done, could be done, or might be done, one finally can confront the searing questions. Why do anything at all? What is really important? What is worthwhile doing? And what does it all mean anyhow? Nothing may be the answer returned, and if that is so, there is little to do but acknowledge the obvious as spirit goes on its way. This is difficult to do, but it is essential to honor that answer, no matter what other plans might be affected. Even if it were possible to plead and cajole, appealing to corporate loyalty, family pride, or whatever else may have persuasive power, a verbal turnaround would do little good. When one has looked into the depths and seen no future, there is no meaningful leverage. Nothing times nothing is, unfortunately, nothing. With nothing to give and nothing to gain, nothing will be accomplished. But there is another possible outcome should despair turn to imagination. In the silence of ending, when there is nothing left to be done, the ground is cleared of all the shoulds, oughts, and musts. It is now possible to think of the might-be's and the what-if's. No longer constrained by what was, everything now becomes possible. Pure possibility is the seedbed of imagination. Imagination cannot be forced, but it may be invited, even as spirit will not be coerced, but may be invoked. The proper invitation to imagination is not to issue the next five-year plan or provide the full-blown description of coming attractions. The invitation is always a question. The form may be various, but the substance will always be something like, what are you going to do for the rest of your life? Questions maintain the open space within which imagination and spirit can grow. The power of the questions lies in their capacity to evoke, creating a sense of futurity, the mere possibility that the end is not all and that beginning is close at hand. An invitation accepted is extended is no guarantee of acceptance, but if spirit enters and imagination is sparked, it will become manifest in statements like, you know, the old organization was really grand, but we never could quite reach the potential that I'd hoped for. I wonder if... Dot, dot, dot. Imagination plus wonder creates vision, from which futures are made. Thus, we have completed the cycle, returning from the moment from which we began, when spirit is evoked by vision. But if the journey has been an effective one, spirit renewed is not the same old thing with fresh paint. As the old vision, collective story, and structures of time and space fall away, victim to a changing world, new manifestations of spirit emerge, related for sure, but now appropriate to the changed world. 
the process of transformation moves on. Leadership in the process of grief. Whatever else leadership may be able to accomplish, it cannot do grief work for anybody. That, fortunately or unfortunately, is something that individuals must do for themselves, even if they all do it together. Nor can leadership minimize the pain or somehow protect those who grieve from their grief. Humanitarian concerns may strongly suggest the opposite, and when those concerns are blended with holdovers from the present dominant view of leadership, the temptation to intervene may become almost irresistible. But resisted it must be, first because it is useless, but most importantly because the mere attempt at intervention may retard or abort the process, a process through which individuals and organizations evolve and transform. No pain, no gain. The mention of holdovers from the present view of leadership probably needs elaboration. As long as leadership is viewed as the exclusive prerogative of the one or the few to be exercised for the benefit or detriment of the many, the basic mode of relationship between leaders and followers will be some form of passive dependency. At worst, this means treating followers as those idiots, although advanced leaders in the old mode seem to be moving toward an enlightened paternalism or maternalism. The master-servant relationship may work well in more ordered times, and for sure it does wonderful, albeit superficial, things for the egos of leaders and the security needs of followers, but when the times become chaotic, the relationship is not only unworkable, it is also counterproductive. At precisely the moment when all of us must take maximum responsibility for ourselves, that responsibility is denied. No one can negotiate the path of transformation for another. Obviously, there are cases of real need and genuine incapacity, physical, mental, or social. But when incapacity is presumed, that presumption often becomes a self-limiting and self-fulfilling prophecy. So the issue is not a matter of absolute do's and don'ts, but rather of presumptions. Presume incapacity and it will likely be found or created. Presume capacity for responsible action and you may well be surprised. In no event, however, can our presumptions change reality. Negotiating the process of transformation is something that can never be done for another person. Transformation, like death, because it involves death, is a solo activity. In the words of the old spiritual, you got to walk that lonesome valley by yourself. Love, what leadership can do. Leadership is the process of grief, or more broadly, or leadership in the process of grief, or more broadly, in the course of transformation is critical, but it does not play out according to the old rules. The prime function of leadership is to love, and to manifest that love by, one, really being there at the end, two, maintaining the open space, and three, evoking the question. The two faces of love. The word love is used in so many ways as to have almost lost its meaning, referring from everything from raw fornication to some idealized state, and even to the divine being, as in God is love. Perhaps the normative use is acceptance. I am clear that love includes acceptance, but I believe that there is more. Love, in my experience, always has two faces, a face of acceptance and a face of challenge. It is never either or. It is always both and, and the power of love is manifest in the open space created by those two faces. The first face of love is unconditional acceptance, taking others just the way they are, 
where they are, and how they are, with no questions asked. It is non-judgmental to a fault. The good news of acceptance is that when we find ourselves accepted, we can more easily accept ourselves as we are. No justification, no rationalization, no apologies. But acceptance has its downside. Without standards, life turns to mush. Without rigor, thinking becomes sloppy. Without judgment, anything goes. Pure acceptance leaves you just where you are and never urges you to become everything you could be. Thus, the other face of love is radical challenge, a challenge potentially so extreme that you are catapulted into new ways of being. The standards are set, the expectations are there, the judgment is real. Mushy life won't do, sloppy thinking is unacceptable. Challenge is the road to fulfillment, but challenge by itself is disastrous, for it creates a life of unmitigated harshness. The open space of love Neither face of love will, lurk, will work alone. Although we may prefer the comfort of acceptance, it is certainly, it, and it certainly is comfortable, we require the stringent slap in the face of challenge. But it must always be challenge grounded in acceptance, and acceptance excited by challenge. In personal terms, we may e address each other as follows. Quote, I take you just the way you are and expect you to become everything of which you are capable, and more. End quote. Love is neither acceptance nor challenge alone. Rather, it is the open space created by the tension between the two. Maintaining that tension, dialectic, polarity, call it what you will, is no easy task. It is always tempting to give in to the comfortableness of acceptance or to lose patience and issue an ultimate challenge. But the depth of love is measured by the breadth of the open space. Partial love is one or the other. Little love is marginal acceptance and minimal challenge. Great love is acceptance and challenge without boundary. Although this notion of love may appear different and perhaps strange, it is not without precedent. In Indian mythology, the two faces of Shiva, destroyer and creator, create the same polarity. From the Tao comes the yin and the yang, to the same effect. And in the Torah, Old Testament to the Christians, there is Yahweh's misfat, or mishpat, judgment, and kezid, loving kindness appearing in and through his essence, essence, which is love. Those traditions, at least, understand mankind to reach fulfillment in the presence of the love of God or gods, and that love is always manifest in the polarity of acceptance and challenge. Leadership, Love, and Grief When the end comes and grief commences, loving leadership is essential, and that love will manifest itself in some very concrete ways. By really being there, maintaining the open space, and evoking the question. Being there in love. The first and possibly the most difficult manifestation of love is to be there, right in the middle of all of the grief and chaos. Not just as a visible body, although that, although that may be the only possibility sometimes, and certainly physical presence is usually better than none at all. But being there really being but being there means really being there, accepting the folks and the reality of ending just the way it is, while simultaneously expecting and urging the new reality into being. In more specific terms, this means being open and available to everything. The pain, the tears, the loneliness, the feelings of self-doubt, the imitations of meaninglessness. As a leader, you can't change any of that, nor can you ultimately, or proximately, shield your fellows from the searing effect. 
your presence is made more difficult, not to mention painful, by the same feelings in yourself. But leadership at a distance is not possible. As, as Harry Truman is reported to have said, quote, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen, end quote. None but a fool would underplay the cost of such proximity. When the tears of others become your tears, when their fear is made your own, the effect is not pleasant. It might be made more bearable were you able to maintain the Olympian distance, but more often than not, that escape route is denied for the simple reason that the tears of others are, in fact, your own, even as the fear is held in common. Unless you just dropped in from some other planet, you are all going through it together. If the cost is steep, the reward is high. As the process of grief works its way down from anger to denial, past memories, down into the dumps, and onto imagination, and then to vision, dissolution turns to triumph, chaos into order. All of which brings up an interesting question. How do you stand it? For those who persist in playing by the old rules, the leader can and must always be in control. Taking everything onto himself or herself, truly being there is not possible. Sooner or later, that sort of leader will find it necessary to take a quick trip to the executive suite, never to be seen again. Or if seen, then always through some safe protective shield, the official appearance as it were. Sticking it out in the kitchen is never something that can be done alone. The idea that we all must be leaders to one another is a matter not of democratic ideal, but of practical necessity. Under the extreme conditions of transformation, in the middle of the process of grief, it is inescapably true that the leader is whoever has the ball. And for sure, ball hogs die. Maintaining Open Space The task of leadership at the onset of the process of grief is to do nothing, or certainly as little as possible. No schedules can be set, lectures given, MBOs prepared, or management by objective. If no thing can be done, however much must be accomplished under the heading of creative space, establishing the time, place, and permission to get on with the business. The initial stages of grieving simply have to roll out, and leadership must see that the opportunity is available for all to occur. Above everything else, it is imperative to recognize that there is no possibility of arbitrarily shortening the process or skipping stages. Shock and anger are there and must be expressed and accepted. Allowing for the collective, ooh, damn, or the equivalent, is essential. No attempts to muffle the noise, to make things seem polite and proper, or to downplay the intensity of feeling with soothing words or consolation will have any useful effect. Indeed, they will be completely non-productive. Shock not followed by anger usually means that breathing has stopped. And anger unexpressed inevitably goes underground to eat out stomachs and poison future working relationships. The same is true with denial. Although cooler and more rational heads will see that the pretense of continued denial is only make-believe, the anesthetic quality of denial is critical to the moment. No exhortations to deal with reality will change the fact that at the moment reality is too painful to be dealt with. Some people will never deal with the reality of ending, and they will be lost to the new possibility of new beginning. But even they must be given the space to make that choice. Nobody can do it for them, nor can it be done before they are ready. When it is time, it is time, and not before. When grief moves us to deal with memories, the role of leadership can become more overt by creating special times and places, even formalized ones, where memories can be honored. 
This is the function of the Irish wake, but you don't have to be Irish to gather the benefits. A special time to honor the heroes and salute the mighty deeds, all in the context of a dinner and a glass or two, won't hurt. But no matter what, do not stop the process. Heroes unsung and deeds not honored will surely lie restless in the grave and never become available to inspire the evolving future. Honoring heroes is best done with love. It is essential that they and their deeds be taken at face value, for only in doing that can we really appreciate, for better or for worse, what has transpired. But dealing with heroes only at the level of acceptance is not sufficient, for then we never ask what could have been done. What are the possible implications of their contributions? The function of memories, as grief works, is not only to let go of the past, but also to lay the groundwork for whatever comes next. It is the front edge of a learning process that can take us from where we were toward whatever we might become. And the driving engine of that process is critical judgment. Love maintains the open space in which heroes can be seen for what they were and learned from as a guide to possible futures. A, tru a truly profound moment for leadership appears in the depths when the memories have passed and the silence of ending is deafening. The temptation to break that silence will prove almost irresistible, but if yielded to, the moment will be lost. For concealed in that moment are the seeds of the future, which must be allowed to germinate. In the clarity of ending, when everything else is gone, comes the extraordinary opportunity to consider what it all means. Don't waste it. Honor the open space with the dignity of silence. In that silence, wonder may appear. Ask the question. There will come a time when wonder turns to imagination, but leadership cannot rush in to fill in the details. The critical point is the question, what are you going to do with the rest of your life? The posing of that question will mark the shift from ending to new beginning, and it is the unique task of leadership to sense the moment when the question is ripe. No magic formula applies here, and clock time is entirely useless, for the question will set its own time, Indeed, time will start anew with the posing of the question. It would, it would be a consummate error to suppose that at this point leadership by the old rules may now reemerge, with the leadership lining up the troops to await their answer. The question will be asked by all of us to each of us in a thousand different ways. It may be quite direct, or more often than not, the critical question will be posed in the beckoning rays of a dawning sun, suggesting that a new day might just come or it may be in the hungry cry of a newborn child, reminding us that life begins anew. Each of us has different ears and different eyes, but all of us may become leaders to one another by offering the question in ways that may be seen and heard. Asking the question in love is the deepest act of leadership, for just as the question creates the space within which the quest for life, new life may be pursued, it is love that releases the spirit for the journey. Love as acceptance creates the conditions in which things may be taken just the way they are, allowing the realization that it really is over. We really can let go and move on. Love as challenge points the way, not with a detailed plan that must be followed, but rather with the expectation of future fulfillment. Do we really have to go through all this? Doubtless there are times when we might wish that the ruler of the universe had consulted us prior to setting up the original design, for surely we could have figured out a better way. But in fact, I strongly sus suspect that the great cosmic being, by whatever name, has already given us precisely what we are asking for. For better or for worse, 
we have been left with the responsibility for deciding and designing what we are to become. But nobody ever suggested that responsibility comes for free, and quite obviously, some people sometimes handle it better than others. Being stuck with the process doesn't mean, however, that we can't learn to do it better. In fact, I think the story of the moment is that we are being given endless opportunities to do just that. It may have appeared in our earlier discussion that the process of transformation and the work of grief take place only in megabuster situations when markets collapse, industries end, and organizations go out of business. While it is certainly easier to see the process in such extreme situations, I think the, re the reality is that the precipitating events of transformation are occurring ever closer together. No longer are they separated by millennia, or even by the comfortable 20-light-year cycle, or 20-year cycle, marked by the generational flush. Transformation is ongoing, and transformations lap at and pile on top of one another. We are quickly moving from the old slideshow presentation into the great organizational picture show. In practical detail, this means that what was once a 20-year or longer phenomenon, which we could afford to wait for and then hope to muddle through, is now an everyday occurrence. Unless we wish to be constantly surprised, we have the opportunity to handle it better. The opportunity is made richer by the fact that not only are major transformations coming with greater frequency, but there are a whole bunch of them going on all around us simultaneously, many of which we are hardly aware of. We, what may be a precipitating event for you may be a matter of minor concern to me, and vice versa. For example, as president of a company, it may make little existential difference to you that the product line for which I have given blood, sweat, and tears is about to be terminated. You see it as progress. For me, it is a disaster. Hmm, perspective. Sitting where I sit, it is the end of the world, or at least my world, which is, after all, is the only one that counts for me. It is quite possible, indeed highly probable, that I will have a number of unkind things to say about you. That is called shock and anger, but I also have the opportunity to seize the particular moment as an occasion for evolution. Even more than that, I could also learn a great deal about the process, so the next time things fall apart, as surely they will, I will be ready. The bottom line is quite simple. There was a day when the call for leadership came once a millennium, century, or decade. Leaders, leaders emerged to answer the call, and we judged them to be unique, awesome individuals. At the moment, the call is going out constantly, so we all have the opportunity and necessity to try. Fortunately, I think the secret is out. The solitary leader is gone. We are all leaders. Thank you for watching. Please like, subscribe, and visit my channel for more exciting content.